much. Uh, the lights are strong. Norris, can I get you a drink? Uh, thanks. What is this? There we are. So before I begin uh, chatting with Lars, I'd once again like to um, extend our gratitude and appreciation to the uh, German Embassy, the Goethe Institute, the Holocaust Education Trust, and of course the IFI for organizing and hosting this evening. Um, Lars, I'd like to begin by asking, or by asking a question in relation to a, a statement that's very well known amongst filmmakers, is that eventually the film that you're making comes to resemble the plot. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, did you encounter any difficulties in raising the money to make the film like the way Fritz Bauer encountered opposition to what he was trying to do? Well, I guess my problems were not as big as his problems. <laughs> but, um, and my problems were more, more self-made because the film I had made before was very expensive and a huge flop. And so, so it was hard to make this film, um, but that's, yeah, it's, that's what every filmmaker career is like. It goes up and down all the time. And this one, I, I, I knew that it would be a lot about old men talking politics, so I tried to, to make it for not as much money as the previous film. <laughs> and um, I was very struck by the way you actually chose to open the film. I am. Mm -hmm. um, because you show actual archival footage of Fritz Bauer himself. And I presume that was taken from the 1960s. Yeah, yeah it was after, he talks about Eichmann, so it was later yeah. than Jerusalem trial. Yeah. Right. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, starting point because lesser filmmakers and less challenging stories would just simply have begun based on a true story. How many times have we seen that in a movie? It just says based on a true story but you chose not to use that phrase, but to use the archival footage. Is there, was there a particular reason why, and where did you, did you find that archival footage very easily? Yeah, well, I don't mind the phrase. I, I would have used it, but in this case, um, it had a very simple reason. You know, Fritz Bauer, we found the archive footage that we used later in the editing room. Okay. I, I can't really remember where it came from all of a sudden, but it was so good because it's like a foreword to the film, and. And it helped us a little bit, to, it, it, I think it helps the audience to understand why the guy is talking and behaving so weird. He has this strong, he has this extreme body language and this weird hairdo and, and people who did not know him, and basically no one knew Fritz Bauer or no one really, even in Germany, no one remembered Fritz Bauer. That was the reason why I wanted to make the film is, um, then when Burkhardt played him so well in this weird body language, I thought, okay, people will think something's wrong with the actor. You have to explain to them. And then we found that footage. It was a good forward, so we put it in front of the film. But also, I think the, the choice of that particular clip, as you said, introduces yeah. Yeah, yeah. the theme of the story. Because, you know, he, he mentions this is, the country, this is the culture that produced Goethe and Beethoven, and also Hitler and Eichmann. Mm. And it's a really, really interesting, subtle theme that you, you thread through it, because he also then in the same, when he appears on television and he's interviewed by the young, the, the young people, he's asked a question by the young people and he says, laws are not enough. Mm. You've got to live them, you know? Um, and it means, you know, you can come from a culture that creates, that produces Goethe and Beethoven, but that doesn't mean that that's who you are. 
you've still got to live it yourself. I thought that was a really, really nice, nicely threaded through that you, the way you did it that way. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. We're not all, all good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it, this is a true interview. You know, this, this uh, seller um, com dialogue conversation thing is, is all taken from a, yeah, from, a, from a TV show that he, that he was invited to. And, mm. In the, I think a little bit later, also in the early 60s. He got, he got a little bit famous in the early 60s in Germany because then after this Eichmann, this hunt for Eichmann, he, had this, he conducted these Auschwitz trials that were really famous. So people knew him, but most of the Germans, or many Germans hated him. The young generation um, listened to him and he was very influential in a way. And then when he died in 1968, he was forgotten, basically. Right, right. But also then he says, I've got a quote here, um, in that TV piece, he says, oh, yeah. uh, you can have the best laws, but you need people to live those democratic ideals. And I remember when I was in college, I remember I had a tutor who said that, you know, democracy is not an idea. It's a living, breathing thing. And we must exercise it daily to keep it fit to keep ourselves fit so we can protect it and defend it, or it can defend us when we are challenged by opposing forces to democracy. And I think that's what Bauer was touching on there, because Adenauer, Adenauer was the chancellor. The chancellor at the time. Yeah. And at the time, it appears from history that he, he shifted the focus of the government, the government policy, away from denazification of Germany to the economic uh, revival. And I think that's what Bauer was saying. Was that what he was addressing? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, there's no doubt that Adenauer was a Democrat and he was um, just doing his job at that time, which was to rebuild the country that mm. was basically destroyed. Um, and he had no other men but Nazis. I mean, the whole country was full of people who had just a few years before supported the Nazi regime. So. He was very practical about this, right. um, as practical as he, which is mentioned in the film, that his, um, his most important state secretary, um, uh, Globke, was, um, was, a very, was a Nazi, and he was very important in the Adenauer administration. But um, um, Fritz Bauer, he, I mean, he was not a naive person. He knew that, that, there, was not a, that there were not different people. You could just... But, you, but still he thought you could educate the younger generation and you could um, at least try to, to make the older generation talk about things that had happened, which was completely, literally impossible. This, this generation did not talk about the deeds they did before 45. Mm. And even much longer, I think it's really um, until the 90s and, the, and really just in the last 20 years that books came out in Germany and that... Um, that dealt uh, with the different um, with different departments in the government and how many Nazis have been in what position for what time, and so on. And for example, in the in all the courts, um, all the law, all the judges and so on were, I think, to a high percentage, 80% or so, were had done the same job uh, in before 45 and after 45, and that went on to the 70s and 80s. So. For a long time, there was just this society, and the denazification was a, was a huge thing. Mm. Um, yeah, and Bauer, of course, was a was a true Democrat, and this is why he was addressing the younger generation and trying to get them to think about things that had happened and to ask questions 
um, that they did not dare to ask. Mm. So this isn't your only film addressing history. I mean, you mentioned, it was mentioned before oh. you made um, Silent Revolution. Mm -hmm. And you also made a TV show about Walter Gropius. Yes, about the Bauhaus yeah. movement. Um, and so considering those, those topics are so huge, the Silent Revolution is about um, a group of children in school listening and they hear, they hear reports from the revolution, the uprising in... In Hungary in 1956. Those topics are so big. And Fritz Bauer's life was so enormous. You know, I was wondering... The movie ends with the caption that the, the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials happened mm. almost a decade later. I said, well, that's a huge story. When you're addressing this life, how do you choose your moment of attack, or your mo not a moment of attack, but your, your entry into the story? I mean, how did you choose that particular moment for Bauer's life? Well, the Auschwitz trial is just so big that you have to make a TV series about okay. it. You just need more time. The Eichmann hunt is, is very, it's, it's, it's a very sim simple story, basically. He got this letter from Lothar Hermann, then he went to the Mossad. The Mossad said, give us a second source. He looked for the second source. By the way, the second source is the one detail in the film that is, that is not researched. It's not clear until today who the second source was. He found a second source. They, they got Eichmann. They brought him to Jerusalem. The, the government, the German, the... the um, the German government did not want Eichmann in Germany. The Israelis didn't really want to hand him out. They, they wanted his, their, their trial in Jerusalem too, but that's a different story. Well, anyway, they, things happened like this, and it was, films are made from short stories. You know, from simple, you, from simple, simple and stories. short stories, yeah. It's a, if you take, if, this is why so many novel adaptations don't work because the novels are so long and you need so much information. There's so much in them mm. and films are really just, you, the good films are often play, I think, often play in a, in a few days and shorter periods and so on. And, and I, I had written this with a friend, with Olivier, um, and I always said, let's just try to focus on this hunt for Eichmann because everything we want to portray about Fritz Bauer, the times, the denazification, you know, the impossibility of bringing Nazis to trial in Germany, everything we can pin to this really very famous Nazi Adolf Eichmann, mm. who is so well known all over the world because of the Jerusalem trial. There was, there's more written about Adolf Eichmann and, uh, than about Hitler. There are more texts about him just because of this trial. And, and we knew that if this untold story, and no one really knew it, um, that this this old and kind of weak, isolated uh, state attorney in Frankfurt was behind this um, operation, this famous Mossad operation. We knew that this would actually be all, and all enough to make one film. And if you, if you try to make too much in a biographical picture, then it comes to this dramaturgy that you all know where a film goes like, oh, this happens, and then this happens, and then he got married, and then he got divorced again. And you think, yeah, but what, what's the point of all this? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. It's just the way life works. It's yeah, and I think also, if you're if someone were to make a movie, another movie about the, the search and the, the discovery of where Eichmann was, the movie is then about Eichmann, and it's not about yeah. the, the hero who is. Well, there, there are films about the Eichmann hunt, mm. and uh, but I don't think that there's a film about Eichmann. But mm. there's a book about Mengele by my co-writer Olivier Guest, which was very famous in France a few years ago. He asked me to 
co-write that, but I said I can't write another book about Nazis. I've mm. had enough of them. You also, I mentioned the, the way you open the film. I'd like to address the way you close the film. Oh, yeah. Because I think it's a, you know, I don't know, didn't know that much about Fritz Bauer before I saw the film. I think I know a little bit about him now. But I thought the, the way that you chose to end the film was really, really great because it's almost like, yeah. I'm going to take you all on, you know? I'm going to take it all on. I mean, you know, a, a moment of uh, great strength and uh, fortitude. And, but that was not the way he died. No, no, it's the... Um, I try to remember... The, uh, I can't. The, the, the last image of the film is a, is, is, is a reproduction, basically, of, the most, of, the, of, the, of one of the famous photographs of Fritz Bauer on his desk in his office. He had this Le Corbusier um, wallpaper. And there's exactly this picture of him um, standing on his uh, desk. And, and I thought this is the most iconographic mm. image that you can have of this man who was so important for post-war society in, in Germany. Mm. He really died in 1968 the way the film opens, with, in his bathtub uh, with sleeping pills and alcohol and... and but it's and not, that was an accidental death. That was an accidental death, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, there are people who try to uh, prove that he was killed, but I don't think it's true. And, no, yeah. and, um, and if I would think it was true, then I would have made my thriller about that, but it's, it, I don't think it's true. And right. anyway, the, the image of him dying weak in a bathtub, because in, in, uh, it's complex to understand, in 1967 or... I think, or 65 already. There was a law, um, the, the parliament passed a law that prohibited the hunt for um, Nazis who you could not directly pin to a murder. So everybody who was just helping in the system was then not, could not be charged anymore. The moment, it's called the Drehergesetz, and the moment this Drehergesetz was, was passed to Parliament, he knew that any effort that he had made to, 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 to bring justice to Germany was over. So after that, he, he knew basically his job was impossible to do anymore. And then soon after that, he died. But I think it would not be right to make an artificial portrait of a man and to, to portray him in a way you know, I wanted to put him in a way which I think he deserves, which is the strength that he gave to that society, to that generation. Yeah. No? So, um, when you had great success with this film, how difficult or how was it easier to get your next movie made, or is it just as hard all the time? Surely it's got to get a little bit easier. Well, the the, the Silent Revolution, which is the same year on the east. In East Germany, it's this one. This film place starts in 1957. The other one in 1956. So basically, same period. Two two sides of the same medal. It's a uh, piece, and yeah. yeah, and I had written it to this at the same time. And we hardly could make it because we couldn't get um, enough. Uh, we couldn't finance enough money for that. It later got again nominated for four best uh, for best film and all of that. It, so it was very successful. But it's uh, these. The subsidy system is not very easy, and of course, political movies are not, you know, political historical drama is nothing that millions of people want to watch, so it's, it's, not, it's not easy to finance them. Mm. But we got them, we get them made. 
sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. But you then, how is it, uh, is it easier then for you to crew up, get the same crew, to work the same I, people again? I have been working with the same people for, for 15 years. Right. And um, so the crew is a family. They, okay, so it's... They make, all, you know, they make all the TV movies and all the feature films, and now we all do... TV series, <laughs> so they're all the same, all the same people. So given your fascination with history, what's your, is your, are you going to make another historically based film? Yes, I've written a new uh, screenplay for a feature film, which is a war movie about a uh, colonial war that Germany fought in 1905 uh, in, in Namibia. Okay. It was the first attempt of a genocide in the 20th century, and it's a very, it's a very dark story. Right. I mean, obviously, given the subject. When you're making a movie about history, how difficult is it for you to be as faithful as you can to history, but then also to tell an entertaining story? I mean, were there any liberties? That's the, that's the problem. Yeah, but I wouldn't call them liberties, but, you know, you have to condense and also conflate characters. And yeah. For Bauer's story? Well, it's always like this. I mean... In your heart, you know when you're not telling the truth. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing a screenplay, it's basically the same thing. You, you, you research the facts to a certain degree. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a historian. I, I, I read books and I, I know what happened and what they say what happened. And, so on. and, then, and then when you try to bring it together to a, to a feature film, to a screenplay, you realize, okay, this, is, this I cannot do. This is not true. And then you have to step away from it. But, but on the other hand, if you just stick to the accuracy of the research details, mm. then the film might, in the end, turn out to be weak, and people don't want to sit in the theater and say, oh, it might all be true, but it's so boring. I mean, that doesn't work either. So mm. you have to find this balance. I mean, here, for example, the, the subplot of Karl Angermann being homosexual and, um, and going to the police and, and then, you know, deliver himself to the police, that, is, um, that did not happen at the same time as the hunt for Eichmann. There was a young attorney working for Fritz Bauer who later um, was blackmailed for his homosexuality. So basically we, you know, we take, two, take our liberty to put that, these events parallel to the hunt for Eichmann and, make, and find some truth in that, the truth being, you know, that you can be blackmailed for whatever you do for being a Nazi hunter or a homosexual at that time in Germany. But, of course, that is not, that is not historically accurate, but it's, still it's true. It's the same with this image that I just described, him dying in a bathtub. It's not how you should, you know, actually open the film, this is how he died, but, again, it's an art, it's a, it's an art form. It's mm -hmm. a, you know. So, when you made The Silent Revolution, um, the difference there, I think, you, you were dealing with people who are actually still alive. Yeah. And how, oh, yeah. how is that different from, I mean, the responsibility, did you feel a different onus and responsibility in telling people stories when they're still alive? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. I mean, uh, when, I did, when I made the silent revolution, we, for financial reasons, we had to bring it to a, we had to move the story from one town where it happened to another town that still existed the way it looked in 1956. So I toured around with the film, and I come to that city where we actually sh shot the film, and, and a very old lady got up and said, I have been living in this city for, you know, 100 years, and nothing like this happened. And I said, yeah, that's because we just shot here because it looks so good. And of course, you're always scared of that moment that people say, yeah. call, 
you know, catch you in a lie. Mm. But um, in the case in the Sun Revolution, that's, that wasn't true, though. Was the people who were yeah, well, we just sold. moved to just moved the city. It didn't really, it didn't really matter in what city it happened. It just we had to shoot it. Mm. But the real people of that class that that um, opposed the system in '95, they from these 20 um, students that that the film talks about, 15 were still alive, and those 15 people were really were really happy and touched and, and they said basically yeah, that this is our story. Mm. So so that's very important if you if you if you make a film and then these fifteen people say, What is this? Right. And you have yeah. a problem. Then you're in a problem. I'm amazed though by the the, the the degree to which your research went and your your collaborators went, because you were saying the wallpaper behind Bauer was actually the same wallpaper that, yeah. but it was designed by um, Le Corbusier, Le Corbusier yeah. and it was the same wallpaper he had in his, his in his office. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you if you Google any pictures of Fritz Bauer, you will immediately find his office with this wallpaper. So you have to have this wallpaper, otherwise, it's you know. And then you, <laughs> it's not just well, wallpaper. Well, then it's interesting. Then you you as I said, we shoot these films on not at such a high budget, and then you call the guys who own the rights to Le Corbusier's wallpaper, and they say, well. It's um, 2,500 euro for 30 seconds. We say, God, the whole film player is in his office. <laughs> what can we pay for that? And you then just you have to make a deal a, with them. A reverse shot. Yeah. <laughs> so were there any other um, difficulties and challenges like that for the, when you're making the movie? Because you, ha you do have, you've got to place it historically. And it's not just the cars. And it's not just the gramophone or the TV. Yeah. Well, Airlines? They, yeah, there are, uh, there are lots of stories about, you know, the compromise you have to make when you're shooting on low budget. Um, for example, the, the guy who plays Eichmann is a friend of mine. And when I saw this picture, of, the picture, I said, he looks like Michael. And then I called Michael and said, Michael, Michael, it's Lars. I have a, I have a role for you. It's Adolf Eichmann. He said, God, you're crazy. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not the hardest part. The hard part is we are shooting Eichmann hiding in Argentina. We have to shoot it all in Israel. And he says, wow, so I'm out of Eichmann in Israel? <laughs> and, and then we were shooting these scenes on the market square in some, on the, some square in Tel Aviv when he's buying his oranges and smelling. And all the extras were Israelis, and they would, they would come with their self and say, I want a selfie with Eichmann. And they would take these pictures of him. And, and he said, God, this is so terrible. What, what have, have you, put, done? What have you done to what me? Have you done to yeah. me? <laughs> But you also were telling me an interesting story about the um, footage of the airplanes. Yeah, yeah. We, you, I mean, these airplanes, they they eat kerosene like like crazy. You cannot we we cannot afford to fly an airplane to start an airplane like that on our budget. So we took the, you know, this company Red Bull. They have hundreds of airplanes. They make so much money with a stupid drink. They have this plane, and it has. Planted, painted Red Bull all over, so we just retouched. We took, they gave us their footage. We couldn't even afford to start the engines once. We did give us their footage and we made it look like Fritz Bauer sitting and then we repainted the, we retouched the Red Bull because of course he couldn't fly Red Bull Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the interior? Was the, that? There, there, there was a museum airplane with a tiny, with a tiny hole where you could climb in and then we had to bring all the equipment in and and the poor Burkhardt, he's not, he's not the youngest man anymore. He had to climb through that little hole. And, then <laughs> and, and there was the extras behind him. They were actually shaking his seat. So it <laughs> looks like he's, 
he's lying. So if he actually, if he wasn't able to Could climb... Could you make me tell, talk about my dirty secrets here? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just thinking that, you know, if he wasn't able to make it through the, the little gap... Well, then, then there would have been no scene with the socks. <laughs> I think we can open. We should open up to the audience now for some some questions. Uh, we have a microphone, so if anybody has any questions, to, to raise their hand, please. We have a few people over on the on the, the far side. Are you taping it? Are you tape? Are you taping the conversation? Or otherwise? Oh yeah, because otherwise we can repeat your questions. Can, yeah, that'll be good. Faster. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm. You said it's best to make a film on a simple story, and this might have been a, a very less interesting film. It might have been a documentary, but I think what uh, makes it very interesting is the way that you engage us, the audience, uh, with Fritz Bauer. And uh, I've seen this in some of your other work, like Kommissar Steyer. Mm -hmm. as the Frankfurt, Frankfurt Commissar uh, in Tartort. And I was wondering, uh, does this come easy to you, or is it difficult? The writing? Well... The storytelling? Well, the way, the way you direct, I imagine, because... You oh, it's more about the... Mm. the yeah, it's more about the writing. I, I think directing is easier than writing. Um, and the writing in this case was difficult, although it seems so simple, the, the way you can tell, I mean, when you go out to the bar and you tell someone the, about the film, you just so you can easily pitch the story, I think, but it was quite, it took us quite some time to get it right. Um, and, um, yeah, so the, the writing of these, of every, the screenwriting is more difficult because it is so limited. Screenwriting is really just action and dialogue and you cannot write what someone feels because you can you know you have to express it express it in movement or images or uh, yeah and then the directing if you have a good screenplay directing is not so difficult i think thank you thanks um, it's interesting you know my detective steyer <laughs> okay i think for sorry sir to your left down the line and if I, could, if I could make a request that once you've asked the question, if you could pass the microphone back so we could uh, do it more quickly. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. Um, just by pure coincidence, uh, I happened to see the Ken Loach film, um, Seeing the Blues in Red, recently about a folk singer who defects over to, the, over to West Germany. And uh, in a kind of a press conference, um, he reminds the West German establishment of um, their role in, in, in all the similar themes that are dealt with here and warns them not to be so complacent, not to be so smug. Um, I won't ask you if um, making a film about East Germany would interest you because you've already stated that you've had quite enough of, of that territory. But I was just wondering if, if it's equally true that um, the former top brass in the Gestapo and in, in the Nazi regime went on to become the top brass um, in the East German regime and in the Stasi and in the likes of the characters that we encounter in the lives of others and so on. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they had the same problem. Um, they had a lot of uh, former Nazis in, all the, in their whole system. 
it was it was um, they dealt with it differently, and they tried. And it was a very simple propaganda trick to blame, to say all the all the Nazis are in the West, and we are all socialists here. But it's not true. And is that is that released the Ken Loach film? No, it's, it's or oh, it's an old film. Okay, okay. Any more questions? We're up the back. I think we have the fourth or fifth row from the back, in the center. Hello, Carmen. Um, my question is mentioned just before that the next movie or one of it come up in is going to be about Lesotho. And uh, what struck me really at that moment when you said that is that I'm sure that some people would not like these stories to be told. And I wonder what is the atmosphere when you make a movie or you say you're going to make a movie about these subjects, the subject today, the subject of Lesotho. How is that person for you? Are you, do you is there a change in atmosphere? I, I can imagine maybe in the 90s it would have been maybe easier to make these movies. Am I wrong? Yeah, I've, in the 90s I was still a <laughs> film student, <laughs> but, um, probably, I don't know. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, these days the atmosphere in Germany is changing rapidly because, um, as you know, we have this right-wing party, AfD, and they start to win elections, and that means politicians from the right wing start to be part of the, our cultural political system. So these, so these uh, commissions, they will start to sooner or later base their decisions you know, on, their political, on the political will of our country. And you see what's happening in Hungary and um, sooner or later it will be even more difficult to, uh, to finance these kind of stories. I mean, the, the, this it, there's a reason why Fritz Bauer has been basically unknown since he died in '68, because people were just there. Is a, a, a vast majority of people were happy that that he was gone and that he didn't ask his unpleasant questions anymore. And of course, um, the um, yeah, the pe people from the AfD they already explained what they want, what kind of culture they want in Germany, and this these my films don't fit to their culture. I think we've got one time for one more question, in, a, a quick, short question. A quick in question the, um, without in the, there political... Was maybe in the centre who had her hand up. Yeah, here we are. I enjoyed the film very much, and this is really a trivial question, but in a sub subplot, I was very curious after Eichmann had said, do not let that girl in the house, and she got in the house and identified him. Um, what happened to Sylvia and Nick? It's a true part of the story. It's a true part of the story, and it's really interesting. Yeah, she was, she, the Mossad really used her to, 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 for the, uh, to find out things about uh, Eichmann. Um, Lothar Hermann, her blind father, later got arrested uh, in Argentina, and they claimed that he was Adolf Eichmann, which is completely ridiculous. Or, no, no, Eichmann was then captured. That he was somehow anyway. He was kept. He was kept. Claimed to be a Nazi. Um, uh, Sylvia um, and Nick. Um, Sylvia had to flee the country. She had to. She had. She went to the USA with a fake identity um, because of death threats. And I don't know what happened to Nick Eichmann. I can't tell you. Um, yeah, but that's but but of course this story destroyed the Hermann's life basically.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Lars. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you all for coming. And just one final word.